If you would please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not! But Jesus looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's pray. Father, I, I beg for the work of your Holy Spirit in the office of a teacher that my lips will unfold what your son in the temple meant by the words he spoke that day. May we hear them, not only with our minds, but with our hearts, so that we also will say, these things are marvelous in our eyes. Do that to the glory of the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's remember the context here now where we're at in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. It's the last week of His life and the tension is skyrocketing. He came in on a donkey with the crowds praising Him as the promised Messiah, the Son of David, the King. He was confronted by the religious elite saying, stop these people from praising you that way. And He said, if they stop, the rocks will cry out praising Me. And then He enters the temple in holy anger turns over the tables and then he's confronted by the Sanhedrin and the emissaries they send 
demanding, by what authority do you do these things? And then Jesus turned it around on them publicly. And they had to creep away. But now, right after Jesus saying to the religious leaders, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, He now follows it up with a parable. The parable is the answer to the question, by what authority do you do these things? Who do you think you are, Jesus? And the answer is if God owns the vineyard and Jesus is His beloved Son, the heir of the vineyard, then He is acting under God's authority. And you, religious leaders, are usurping the authority of God. Now, just a note before we look at this parable. It's a little bit different than most of Jesus' parables. Normally, parables are a short little story to illustrate one point. They're not normally allegories. But here, there's a strong allegorical sense meaning different characters in his parable have a one-to-one -one correspondence with the historical reality that Jesus is saying is unfolding. And in this parable, Jesus is laying out redemptive history, particularly from God's founding Israel, His chosen people, to Jesus' coming this very week when He says it, and his death and what comes after. And so, it's clear in the parable that the owner of the vineyard is God. And that the vineyard is God's place of blessing from Him. Mercy and love. And the tenant farmers are Israel and their leaders. And the Son the heir is Jesus. So let's pick up in verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. And stopped there. The analogy when Jesus gives this, they all knew what he's talking about. It was very common for the owner of a vineyard to lease out, to let out his vineyard for others to work it and gain from it. And they would owe the owner a percentage of the crops. And so clearly in the parable, they, they get, yes, of course, the owner, the rich guy, he's got servants. He sends them to get his cut. And they don't give it to him and treat them horribly. 
In this little parable with these servants, Jesus clearly means that God established the Jews, Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their descendants as his chosen people to occupy the vineyard of his blessing. And then, over the centuries, God would send servants to collect from the fruit of obedience and worship from them. They wouldn't give it. In Matthew and in Mark's account of this very parable, they even have more than three servants that, that Jesus talked about. The point is this about the servants. They represent hundreds of years of the horrible rejection that Israel has shown towards God and His servants, the prophets. God has done everything for Israel. He called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, and he has 12 sons, and, and those people, Israel, grow in Egypt and become slaves, and God delivers them out of slavery in Egypt, and He brings them into the land He promised Abraham, their father, hundreds of years earlier so that He can bless them. Israel could have had a huge crop to be a blight to the Gentile nations of the world. And to point to the mercy of the God of the vineyard of the world. But, while Moses is on the mountain after deliverance from Egypt, down below, the people are dancing and partying around a golden calf. And then for 40 years, the vast majority of them grumble and murmur. And then they get into the land, and time and again, God needs to raise up judges to bring the people back because they would constantly rebel and worship. Other gods. And he raised up another judge. And then he finally establishes the kingdom. And during the kingdom, you have the prophet Elijah, and he is banished to the wilderness by the king of Israel. Isaiah is sawn in two. Zechariah was stoned to death before the altar in the temple. Jeremiah was horrendously persecuted. John the Baptist was beheaded. These are the servants that are sent. And that's how they were treated. Just I want you to see something for a moment. Just a few months after Jesus spoke these words, Stephen was before these leaders. He was before the Jewish council. And right before they stoned him to death, these are his final words of a long sermon. Quote, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. 
Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, but did not keep it. End quote. And so in the parable, Jesus lets us know that God in His mercy has sent servant after servant after servant. He is showing God's patience and mercy and love over centuries. But the disobedient nation ignored and mistreated and even killed some of them. And yet God kept sending them as a demonstration of His patience and grace. The leaders of Israel did not want to give to God any of the crop. They wanted their leadership to produce for them the crop of pride. This was the cause of Jesus' intense anger when He entered the temple. Turned over the money tables of those who were selling. His contempt for the leadership is perfectly righteous. And it's strong. It's what Jesus demonstrates here. Centuries of prophets. And then comes the ultimate violence or rebellion in verses 13 to 15. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus is clearly saying that the leadership of Israel that is standing all around him will go as far as murder in order to protect their authority. In those words in the parable where the father says, I will send my beloved son, Jesus is purposefully echoing the words of his father at his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The servants, the prophets, in this parable, that was one thing. The owner's son and the kill him is quite another. The father's love is so great, Jesus is saying, that he is willing to send his own beloved son even after centuries of the people rejecting servants. 
the depravity of the human heart, not just of Israel, but of all of us Gentiles. The depravity of the human heart is on display in this text to the point that they would kill the vineyard owner's son for their own selfish gain. And their crime that the parable depicts will take place within the week that Jesus speaks it. But the parable, it shows not only God's great patience and mercy, but also His righteous judgment on those who reject the Son. Read on. Verse 15. What then... Jesus says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Here's his answer. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, They said, surely not. No. This illustrates what Paul unfolded later in Romans 11.22 where he wrote, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Kindness toward the, excuse me, severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. In the parable, God's kindness is seen as He is sending servant after servant after servant to rebellious Israel much more than they ever deserved in His severity is when these wicked tenants killed the Son. Jesus is God's final messenger. The sum of God's very nature and person and character is personified in His self-revelation through Jesus Christ. If they reject him, there no longer remains a remedy for sin. Only judgment lies ahead. And so Jesus pronounces the judgment that the owner of the vineyard, quote, will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. That line of Jesus shocked not just the leaders, but all the Jews standing around. They couldn't believe it. You've got to be kidding me, Jesus. May it never be! They're stunned. And as we saw with Jesus' pronouncement of judgment on His entry into Jerusalem, this will be fulfilled in AD 70 under the Roman 
General Titus, where he will absolutely destroy the city of the Jews and the temple, and they will be displaced as the privileged nation. And so God then has been grafting in non-Jews, Gentiles, and He will continue to do so until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, get the picture in the temple. They're shocked. No, surely not! And Jesus responds to their shock. Start with verse 17. But Jesus looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Okay, get the picture now. What Jesus does here is he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. This is a psalm that everyone in first century Judaism correctly understood to be a messianic psalm about the Messiah. It is from Psalm 118, verse 26, that the crowds a day earlier were shouting as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem on a donkey. They were quoting it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. And Jesus affirmed, if they stop, rocks will cry out. Psalm 118. He's saying, yeah, it's messianic. Yes, it's about me. And so now here, he quotes verse 22 of the psalm to show that the rejection of his authority and his subsequent exaltation and judgment upon those who reject him was foretold in scripture the stone that the builders rejected now that stone there, they know the language. This is this big, massive, huge stone for a building or for a temple that is at the corner and that it would uphold two joining walls. It, in other words, it's foundational. Everything is depending on the strength of the stone that will become the corner stone. And what angered the crowd at what Jesus just said is that he said the leaders and the people of Israel are opposing God. He's saying, even if you kill the Jewish Messiah, the stone which the builders rejected, God will reverse it and turn him into the cornerstone of a new eternal building, the true foundation of the eternal temple so that we don't miss it I want to turn to a commentator okay on the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone what, what in the okay are we on the right track I think it's pretty self-explanatory but he, I want you to turn to the commentator the Apostle Peter 
for a moment in Acts 4. Because Peter was there that day when Jesus spoke it, and now a few months later, he's there when he's preaching, and he quotes verse 22 of Psalm 18 again. And here's his interpretation of it. Context is Peter and John had healed the man at the gate beautiful of the temple, and they were preaching the resurrection, and therefore the Jewish leadership got very angry, and they arrested him and called them in. And then the next day, they were brought before the council and said, we demand you tell us who gave you the power or authority to be doing these things. And here's Peter's answer, starting with verse 8, Acts 4. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, Peter has just clearly said, the stone is Jesus. The builders are the rulers of the Jews, the elders, the scribes, the high priests. The rejection of this stone is the crucifixion of Jesus and the exaltation to become the cornerstone means His bodily resurrection. The stone that the builders crucified God has raised from the dead and made the cornerstone of His eternal purposes. And the implication of that, Peter clearly says, there is no other name by which any human being can be saved other than this stone, this cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Now, Back in Luke, listen to how Jesus ends. Pick up again with his quote of Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It's clear, isn't it? If you pit yourself against this cornerstone, then you will lose. And he will win all the time. See, th there is a very familiar proverb, a Jewish proverb in the first century that goes like this. And don't think about a metal pot. Think about ceramic pots like they're talking about. If the stone falls on the pot bad for the pot. If the pot falls on the stone, bad for the pot. 
point is clear. The result of rejecting this cornerstone is not good. Regardless of, of, of how the stone meets the rejector, whether the rejector falls on the stone or the stone falls on the rejector, either way, they will either be broken to pieces or crushed into bits. That's Jesus' words. Okay. I hope I did well by saying what's there and what he means. What I want to do now with the rest of our time is talk about two direct implications of what Jesus said here. The first implication I want to talk about is how Jesus is laying out redemptive history and what's going to happen concerning the Jews and the Gentiles. Then the second thing, the second implication is this, that if Jesus is your Savior, oh, we ought to marvel and rejoice in what He says in this text. So let's go to the first implication. God's plan, Jesus says, is working itself out exactly how He purposes it. And the implication of His plan 2,000 years ago, there was a transition that was taking place in His coming, in His crucifixion, and in His resurrection. The stone was being rejected. The owner, the Father, was coming and giving the vineyard to others. And there's a huge change that has taken place with that. That those who are built into this temple with Jesus as the cornerstone, our experience of the law of God, the law of Moses, changes with Jesus' coming, with the rejection of the stone by the builders, by the Jews, by Israel, and His subsequent resurrection and His giving the vineyard to others. Let me just kind of work it backwards for a moment. During His ministry, Jesus abolished parts of the law, like kosher diet, cultural laws that were not in and of themselves moral laws of right and wrong, but laws that God gave to His people, Israel, to make them distinct in the world. Let me give you a taste of that from Mark chapter 7. Jesus speaking says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled and then Mark makes the comment. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. Lobster, bacon sandwiches, pork chops. Everything that the law of Moses in Leviticus forbade 
for Jews to eat. And Paul, during his ministry, backs it up. Took him a while to get it. Took Peter a while to get it. He had to have a vision, right, that Luke lets us know about in the book of Acts. And God had a sheet come down with all kinds of animals in it. And trust me, they were only the animals that Leviticus forbade Peter as a Jew to eat. And he said, rise, kill, and eat. Jesus' rejection and His resurrection directed the focus of the law in this way. It directed the focus of the people, of His people, away from viewing the law as merely that which is external, out there, written on paper. Okay, I'm supposed to do that. And He got to the core of the law, which directs it this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Or the way he said in Matthew 7, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Because this is the law and the prophets. So Jesus is the cornerstone of a new temple and He directs our focus away from external commands. And this is what I mean by that. Meaning alone. External commands. He directs away from paying attention to external commands without a regenerated heart. Meaning without a heart that has been born again or spiritually raised from the dead. This is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, God gave them the right, pure, holy, true law, not only cultural and ceremonial law, but moral law. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt love the Lord your God. He gave them the law, and there it stood, without giving the people as a whole a heart that was born again. And that's the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, according to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the very difference is that God writes the law on your heart. You're made anew. You're spiritually raised from the dead by the cornerstone. And the foundation of all these changes is what Jesus makes clear in verse 16 of our text. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. In other words, with the coming of Jesus, He is saying, God is turning His primary redemptive focus away from Israel to the Gentiles. Here, I'm going to read for about a minute and a half. This is how the Lord Jesus gave it to His Apostle Paul to write in Romans chapter 11. Listen. And he's a Jew. And he's one of the remnant. And he writes, 
What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Now, the elect obtain it of Israel, of Jews. There are Jews who do come into Christ in the cornerstone. But the elect of them obtained it. But the rest were hardened. So I ask, did Israel, my fellow Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? I mean, is that the goal? No, by no means. There was a deeper purpose. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Then you, Gentile, will say, well, Paul, branches, Jews, were broken off so that I might be grafted in to the salvation tree. Paul's answer to that is this. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand firm through faith. So, do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, unbelieving Israel, neither will He spare you, professing Christian Gentile. If you fall away, don't do that. And then He ends. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, we're not going to go there at this moment, but He's going to save Israel through Jesus Christ that are alive someday. But it's not over yet. And so, with Jesus' coming, God's people now are no longer defined by ethnicity or participation in a theocratic system that we see in the Old Testament with particular laws, nor are we defined by having priests and animal sacrifices and temple worship. They will no longer be defined by culture, ceremonial keeping of festivals, new moons and Sabbath days, or food law distinctions. God's people will be defined as those who have faith in Jesus and the fruit of love toward others. So does that, what, do we walk according to, okay, not the cultural laws or ceremonial laws or of the temple, but do we walk according to God's moral laws that are also in the law of Moses. Or, in other words, are, are we to obey Jesus' words? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The answer is yes. We do walk according to, to moral law, but only as those laws come through the filter of their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus 
is a believer's righteousness before God. A believer stands perfectly forgiven and positively righteous before Almighty God, not because of anything they have done, not because of any obedience to any laws, but only because of one man's perfect obedience to the law, Jesus of Nazareth. And therefore, our walk with Him, our obedience to Him, our obedience to thou shalt not murder, love your neighbor as yourself, don't bear false witness, don't commit adultery and fornication. Our obedience to Him is never the cause of our right standing with God. Of our f it's not the cause of our being in good stead with God and forgiven and He's our Father. No, only Jesus is the cause of that. And it is faith that has united us with Him in that. Our obedience is the fruit. It's the evidence of our love for the Savior Christ who is our righteousness. That's the first implication. Jesus is coming. The vineyard was taken away. It goes to the world. Jews are invited. Some come but it's vastly Gentile. It strips away the Jewish cultural laws from it as you preach the Gospel. Now finally, the second implication of what we hear in Jesus' words this morning is this. If you are a believer, you are to rejoice in what He said. You are to marvel at God's ways and be thrilled about it. Now, Jesus in Luke's account only quoted verse 22. He doesn't give us everything he said. And we know from Matthew and Mark, Jesus quoted more of Psalm 118. Not just verse 22, but at least also verse 23. I want you to hear this context here of Psalm 118. Quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So I'm going to close the next ten minutes just with this. Let us ponder what Jesus teaches us here. And Rejoice in it. What we see first in Jesus' words here is that He predicted His own death. The stone that the builders rejected. Now, throughout His ministry, He was crystal clear about it where He would tell His disciples, I'm going to be killed in Jerusalem and I will rise on the third day. Here, He quotes Psalm 118 verse 22 to get that over. But why should we rejoice in that? 
because the Father sent Him. Think about the patience of our Creator toward us sinners. Exhibited in Jesus' parable, He sent servant after servant after servant, and then He finally sent His own Son. Here's the way Paul writes it. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give to us all things? Paul says, for God shows His love for us while we were still sinners. Rejoice. Rejoice that Jesus knows and came and was willing. Yes, the stone will be rejected, punched, and spit on, tortured, and killed. And rejoice that Jesus predicted His own resurrection. I mean, he said it clearly, numbers of occasions. But here, as Peter makes clear, his resurrection is the making of this crucified stone, the cornerstone. There's no cornerstone without the resurrection. There is no foundation without the resurrection of Jesus. There is no salvation without the resurrection of Jesus. There is no genuine Christianity without the resurrection. It is impossible to admire Jesus as a wise, loving teacher while at the same time rejecting Him as the risen Lord of the universe. It's irrational. Because if He did not rise from the dead bodily, to a new, resurrected, immortal, physical existence until this very moment, then he was a deluded or a deceptive teacher. Not a good one. He built his entire life around his own self-understanding that included I will be killed and be raised from the dead. This is what he said in John. In the temple a couple years earlier. Destroy this temple and in three days I, Jesus from Nazareth, will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, in the marketplace of Ideas today in our culture, everyone is just fine with everybody sharing their philosophical and or religious experiences. Oh, that's nice, subjective experience of your religion with 
Buddha, Hinduism, or with Jesus. It's great. Get invited on Oprah for that. But true Christianity doesn't fit into polite dialogue. It socks people in the mouth because it is not built on your religious experience. It is built on a historical, bodily, physical resurrection unto immortal physical life of Jesus of Nazareth. See, our culture is much like Athens, Greece, 25 years after Jesus was in the temple saying these words. You know, they, they love to hear, right, all kinds of religions and philosophies of people. Come on, tell us about what you got. This is, this is cool. And so just imagine if the Apostle Paul would have entered Athens and then to the Areopagus, and he would have just preached his religious experience. Let me tell you about my hero, Jesus from Nazareth, a Jew who was killed 25 years ago, but for a few years his teachings just enraptured the people and still enrapture us today with the insight and the wisdom of how to live genuine and true lives. And when he was on trial, he never fought back or showed those lower base human dispositions like revenge or anger and his teachings and his parables are with us today and he's got a large group of people following them and we find great strength from his words my Jesus can help all of you here just meditate with us in our community on his sayings and your lives will be bettered and then he walks away. What would have happened? That's what Paul did. I think what would happen is he would probably have got some nice hand claps like Teresa did this morning. Good speech. Cool. Awesome. Well, that sounds nice. Probably a lot of stuff I can add to my life with, with my other stuff. That's good. Paul's got his guru. We got ours. You got your religious experience. We got our differing religious experience. We can always help each other. No problem. But what if Paul said, which he did say, according to Luke, in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31, in that setting, quote, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. They stopped Him there and they mocked Him now. Because that is not polite rhetoric in a pluralistic setting. But everything hangs on that 
historical fact that Jesus, the rejected stone who was crucified, was raised bodily from the dead to become the eternal cornerstone. And finally, be amazed that that cornerstone, that, got to get it, human being who was crucified, bloodied, He has become the cornerstone of our salvation through resurrection. He's ascended to the Father. He's a man. Oh, He's more than a man. He was never created. He is the eternal God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And He took to His person genuine human nature just like you and me, yet without sin. And He was raised from the dead and that person will forever be human along with His divine nature. Marvel that our Savior now reigns as a human being who has saved us. I want you to just hear. I know it's four more minutes. Listen. Years later, the Apostle Peter writes to the likes of us, church-going people, he writes this general letter that will be spread throughout the churches. And he's going to quote what he heard Jesus say that day again in this. So listen to him. Embrace it. And let the Spirit of Christ draw you up closely to your high priest, that human being who is divine and human forever. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected my men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You, yourselves, believers, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. Believer, the honor of what you just heard is for you. Because for six weeks after His resurrection, Jesus hung out with, taught, ate food with His disciples. And then ascended. And He'll come back one day. 
But right now, as he sits at the right hand of God in his resurrected body, whatever we is to mean, you can know the power of his presence by the Spirit and his words to you through the Hebrew writer. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Has God let you get in touch with weaknesses lately? Pain? Struggles with besetting sin? Sickness? Whether physical or emotional or relational? We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us with confidence today draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Oh, the power of Jesus' words for your life this morning very day. And finally, what great news, what we hear from Jesus about our future. Because this God-man is not destined to reign over disembodied spirits. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will one day also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells within you. Be a person, kids, adults, Make sure you are a person who is not a rejecter of the stone, who became the cornerstone, but be a person who daily rejoices in the words that Jesus spoke that day in the temple. Have you not read the Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Oh, living stone Jesus, I pray that You, by the Spirit, would not allow Your words from this text to fall upon hard hearts but to fall upon hearts that allow it to sink into the flesh and the softness of our hearts by the work of Your Spirit. Oh, that Your name would be glorified. Holy Father, glorify the name of Jesus. Glorify this rejected stone, this glorious cornerstone. Glorify Him in Your people this morning and throughout this week. By the power that is building us upon Him as the foundation of this eternal temple.